0: Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Managing Up Show, a podcast about leading and managing the world of technology. I'm your host, Estella Gonzalez Madison. And with me this week are Travis Swicegood. Howdy. Nick Means. Hey, everybody. And Brandon Hayes.
1: Hey there. So this week we wanted to come back to a topic that we visited briefly, just about two years ago. Um, when we were very much in the midst of, oh my gosh, everything is changing. And we are not yet sure what to do about it. But one of the things we, we know is that the world is changing around us. Uh, this is March of 2020. And, uh, I don't, you know, I would like to go back in time and tell that Brandon, like, Oh my God, buckle up. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's so much more than you think. Um, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't. And the last two years have offered many, many, uh, challenging lessons about how to, how to manage teams through times of extreme change in the world. And we felt like it would be a good time, uh, to come back and visit that topic of what has changed for us, uh, in the way that we manage our teams since the, the beginning of the pandemic, sort of the ongoing rolling change in the world that continues to occur Um, and we brought in a a special guest, friend of the show, Estella Gonzalez-Madison to help talk us through that. So I just wanted to open up and ask the question more broadly, like what has changed for you over the intervening two years about the way that you approach your craft of management?
0: For me, it's been looking after my people even more than I did before getting to know them more personally, knowing what's happening in their life so that. I understand the cues a little bit better for when they're stressed. Um, buying them gift cards when I know that maybe a family member's sick and I know the last thing that they want to think of is making dinner uh, after work. Uh, so really just being in tune with them a little bit more. And this is probably what I should have done beforehand, before the pandemic. But now so it's just become more important.
2: I mean, you say that you say, you say you should have maybe done it before the pandemic, but I think that's one thing that's probably changed for me as well. Like the the duty of care that a manager has for for the people on their team uh, is something that I think most managers I know that that care about doing this job well have grown a lot in over the course of the pandemic, like actually taking care of people as things happen in their life outside of work. Um, that, that used to be a pretty foreign concept for for most managers and most companies and, and it seems a lot more common now.
1: I, yeah, you went right for the the heart of it, right at the outset. Amazing. Okay, so let's get into it. Cause like I was thinking like, you know, we have a lot more remote now and there's a lot of logistical things that change, but um to to both of your point, that standard of care, the holistic nature of what it is to be a human being, ironically, by pushing ourselves further apart. That's made work more clearly just one component of our entire life. And when everybody is suddenly worried about their own safety and health, it is actually not the most important component of somebody's life at many points in time. And a manager's job is no longer to make sure that you get the best work from somebody. It's now your job to make sure that you are like like fitting into their complete life like making sure that their work actually fits into the rest of their life. And um, in, in order to do so, you have to understand more about their life.
0: Yeah, I, I caught myself in a first one on one with someone and it was someone that I'd never met in person, whereas my other direct reports, I've met them in person. And he was laughing at some of the questions. And I was out of the, off the bat, I was asking him tons of questions, you know, like, My go-to questions were the the Laura Hogan first one-on-one questions, and I tweaked them a bit to include things like, "What's your favorite restaurant um, that has online gift cards available?" And I noticed him laughing, and I was asking him other personal questions just to get to know him a little better, a little bit better, like where where his family lives. Um, You know, uh, he I knew he lived alone, um, and. Seeing him laughing made me realize like how awkward some of these questions must have been. But I also realized like these were things that we used to pick up in person, right? Like you'd go, you have a new employee onboarding, you would fly in or if you're, you live where you work, but you, you'd you meet them in person at some point. And so you'd have lunch together and you'd get this information kind of naturally. And without that setting, I found myself having to just ask these awkward questions <laughs> that normally come out naturally
3: yeah it's that that beer after work the first day where you find out that that somebody's really into motorcycles um and that's how they spend their weekends um that's not just something that normally comes up, but when you take that out of the equation like as a manager, you still want to like know that that's a good thing to know um but you say so you you have to to be uh almost prescriptive about how you go about. Leaning that information. You can't just rely on the, the it ambiently coming up.
1: Yeah. And there's another component to it too, where this is kind of a confluence of remote, but kind of a, uh, both remote and the times in which we live where life has a way of intruding on our work more aggressively. And so, um, and that's, that's really visible when you work together in person and it's not as consequential, even if you are remote um, in like before the pandemic hit in my experience, where I've for a year and a half was homeschooling my kids because we didn't have school. Do do you know that, that teaching school is a full-time job? I did not until I was doing this. And, um, I don't like, I don't know who, you know, I don't care who you are. You're going to go to your boss and say, I do not have the emotional bandwidth that I had six months ago. I do not have the time bandwidth that I had six months ago. You're going to get a limited version of the, the manager or person or worker that I could normally be in times before this. And so I have to expose more of my life to my work. Because it is reducing the, the availability that I might have for work. And I need my workplace to see me as a human being to be able to accommodate that. And then you flip roles and go, oh my gosh, that's my job as a manager now. My job as a manager is to be in the position to make accommodations and to understand what those are and still kind of understand some of those accommodations might have limits to them. Although I think everybody was given a credit card with like no limit on it for a while but you start seeing those limits creep back in and say okay we, there's still work to do work still needs to be done but what accommodations can we afford on an ongoing basis uh, that that's been actually some of the trickier things i've had to navigate we can probably come back to that later but it's the the gist of it is i myself have had to request pretty significant accommodations for the fact that my life is more complicated and more challenging and leaves less available for work than it might have been before.
2: I mean, there are some people in the, the flip side of that equation too, right? So the the people that, despite the world melting down around us, weren't really taking much time off of work. We're still trying to do their job as normal. And you could just kind of like see the pressure building in these people. And so having to to, on the one hand, make sure people knew that they had these accommodations available. And then on the other hand, the people that wouldn't take advantage of them kind of give them a scooch out the door and go, no, 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 you actually do need to leave the house at 10 this morning, or you're not going to get to the grocery store in time to buy toilet paper. That 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 That's a thing you have to do, and it's fine. Go do it.
1: Why does that still feel too soon? <laughs> I think it will always feel too soon. I
0: remember the the emphasis on people with families and... Yeah, My biggest story was actually the people without families because they were the ones home alone all the time. Yeah.
3: I had a buddy who had, who lives in uh, Brooklyn and he had, like, lives by himself and had no human contact for six weeks, like, not in the same room as another human being for six weeks. I I was like, how did you do this? And he's like, very, very hardly.
1: Yeah. Did you have any reports that leaned on work? To, to basically be their handrail through this that wouldn't For stop?
0: Sure. Absolutely.
3: When you were describing the the entire scenario, the, the thing that came to mind, and I think everybody, uh, if you've worked long enough, has gone through this experience where somebody on the team loves, loses somebody uh, near and dear to them and the team rallies around them. And it's just like, you take the time you need, like that go process that deal with that. Like, um, and every so often you run into the person who's like, no, I like just distract me with work for a little bit. Like, that's how I'm going to process this. I'm not ready to, to face this yet. Um, two years ago, and then periodically at times throughout this whole, whole mess, we've had that collectively. It's not one person. It's, the whole team being impacted in various ways. Um, and for all of us here, I think we all deal with distributed teams, whether that's uh, across the US or, or internationally, and everybody's dealing it, and it's literally waves one place is dealing with it and then it kind of rolls into another place or another region. Like I'm thinking through the the way it's rolled through the U S and it hits new England. And then a month or so later, it starts rolling through the Midwest and a month or so after that, it hits the, the South. Um, So we're all used to the idea of this, like, Hey, we need to rally around, around Bob, but now we're doing the whole alphabet, <laughs> like we're having to to rally around everyone, and I think that's the thing uh that has changed uh or that that's significantly different. It's dealing with it at the scale uh that we've had to um It's not one person on the team or one person in the company uh it's it's entire departments it's entire areas regions um that are the the problem and then I mean, and that's been the theme for the last two years is this part of the world is on fire. I mean, if you, if you think back to it, if you had anyone on your team in Australia before the pandemic, literally that region of the world was on fire. It seems like forever ago. Estelle is in Boulder. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Your, your city was literally on fire in extremely recent past. And
0: yeah. And it's, it feels like it's happening all the time now. Um, And you're, we're definitely bracing for a crazy summer.
2: Well, that's been another interesting thing, right? Like it's the, the past couple of years of the pandemic have been rough, but it's not like that's the only thing that's happened in the world over the past two years. Definitely. You know, I mean, you think back to 2020 and the, the murder of George George Floyd and the protests in the wake of that and how deeply that affected everybody. And I don't think that I would have responded as a manager with as much care and empathy in that situation if I hadn't already been in this place of deep empathy and inviting everybody to bring their lives to work, because that was the only way anybody could keep a job in the early days of the pandemic.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a really good point.
3: I I remember in the very early days thinking that like, maybe this is the one, the one good outcome, like trying to fast forward what I thought was three, four, five weeks into the future at the time. Um, but fast forward, like, what's a good outcome? And it's like, well, maybe it will be that people have more empathy because this is a thing that's affected everyone instantaneously. Like there is, there is no, oh, well, it's, it's that state that has this problem. Well, it's just those people that live up in the mountains in California that have things literally on fire or, um, it, it personalized it to everyone, um, in a way that I don't think, um, it, just about anything else could. And it definitely like you're saying, Nick, like primed that pump so that when we had to go back to the to that well, as the other things that have happened over the last handful of years have have unfolded, you're like, oh wait, no, I I I viscerally in a way that I could only intellectually for some of us empathize with, understand that complete loss of control, lack of agency and what that feels like.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about wrapping into a manager interview. Hey, how are your crisis management skills?
3: <laughs>
2: trauma <laughs> trauma, informed management's a thing because we've been through so much collective trauma, a lot of us more than others.
1: Travis and I were talking about this today. Uh, we went and grabbed lunch together and talked about how specifically two years ago, the idea of grief and the workplace were fundamentally incompatible. And one of the ways in which I practice management that people were like, what is this? Why, are, why is the way you do this different? And it's like, because I understand people sometimes experience grieving about things, even work related things. Um, we talked about different, and this may be you know the topic for a different episode, but that is a feeling that people experience. That is an experience people go through. Uh, whether it's like a a role change or somebody that you like leaving or um and and we have so much practice of this over the last couple of years, like wow, so many things we took for granted and lost um and some of the things when my kids went back to school yeah. um i I was shocked at how much grief I felt about we went for daily walks just to like survive. Let's get out of the house and go on a walk. My daughter to this day will not walk with our family around the block anywhere. Mm. Cause she's like, she's like, Nope. Hard pass. That reminds me of a time that I don't appreciate. And I'm like, that's fine. That is how we got through that every single day. Sometimes twice a day, we'd go walk around our neighborhood. Um, and then it was, she's back to school and that part was over. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sad. What? Why am I grieving the loss of something that I wish would have never happened to me?
2: My son and I watched Jeopardy every day at lunch while he was doing school at home. And I was really sad when he went back to school because we couldn't watch Jeopardy together anymore. And I was like, oh, I'll keep watching it. It's it's cool. I enjoy it. That lasted for a week. And I've not watched an episode of Jeopardy since. I don't care about watching Jeopardy.
3: (laughs) To this day, my wife cannot hear Mickey Mouse Clubhouse without like visibly tensing up.
2: I mean I think that's one of the inter- interesting things, right? Um I've been working remotely for gosh, a decade now. Um but one of the things that happened societally as we rolled into the pandemic is all of these companies that were not designed to be remote friendly, that weren't designed to be work from home suddenly got forced into this situation. And you know, that's I think that's part of the the, the response that's built this level of collective empathy is that one of the things about working from home is that you're inviting your coworkers into a small slice of your house. They can see the things in your video background. They know a little bit about your life, just by your kids darting in the room or your dog barking at something. Or, um, but there's also been an awful lot of bad remote work practice out there over the course of the pandemic. And, you know, as we as we emerge from it, there's this big debate of, do we continue working from home? Does everybody come back to the office? What do we do? And it's an interesting discussion because nobody's really gotten a fair taste of what working from home is during the pandemic because that wasn't that wasn't remote work. One of my biggest reliefs at the end of the pandemic was finally getting back on an airplane and going and seeing the face of a person that I worked with. And I knew intellectually that I missed it, but I, I didn't know emotionally how much I missed it until I got that experience back.
0: I do really miss those human connections, and one of the things I'm struggling with right now is is how to get that connection for the people who aren't ready to travel. Um, and, you know, we still we don't let that stop us from from getting together, and it's, you know any any in-person meeting is optional and should be. And I was, I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to, you know, if we have catering, making sure that they also get to expense their lunch in order from their favorite place. But I haven't been able to go beyond that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's something that this experience is actually broken for long enough that you have to figure out what plan B is. Um, we, we were waiting, right? Many of us were holding our breath. For Okay, but at some point, we're going to be able to get back to the normal form of remote work, which is we reestablish the human connections in person like you're supposed to, damn it. And um, I'm two years in, and I I had the great, great fortune of visiting a conference where I was able to meet a couple of my coworkers in person, but I still haven't gotten my team together in person, and and not everybody's going to be comfortable with that. And so figuring out how to make do with what we are able to do in the interim um, means like, okay, well, I guess I regret a little bit waiting to put a plan B together and and moving into plan B mode a little sooner. One of the things that you mentioned, Estella, was uh, one of the things I really appreciate was you do a bunch of preparatory work. Hey, where would where do you like to get food from when it is time? So that, because I've had, co-workers in crisis or, or direct reports in in a borderline crisis and i'm asking them while in crisis where they like to get food delivered from what a great preparatory question to ask um so putting that plan b together saying hey if things don't go exactly as we want what what does a remote off-site look like what does uh what what does um building re- you know what is team building activity look like uh what do what does collaboration look like um if we're not able to periodically get together and so rather than just having this like i have this like continually moving target date of three months out of maybe three months out we'll be we'll be able to um what do we do in six weeks that we can for sure do and then um i I really like the sort of preparatory work though you did i wanted to call that out that that being able to pregame a little bit is a uh, a really strong manager move at this point. And it actually is good for, you know, you could, you could go back in time and that would still be valuable. You could go forward in time and that's still valuable.
0: I keep thinking like, what's, what are the other questions I need to add to that too? You know, it's like, besides being like, what, where's your favorite place to eat? Um, you know, it's trying to expand that to more, activities beyond eating, you know, like what are their hobbies? Um, I don't know if it's practical to try to book something for somebody, you know, that's it's probably not, but it's something I've been constantly thinking about. What are the other questions I could be asking in these first one-on-ones to have a more solid plan B?
1: Do you know one thing I realized in putting together a remote offsite, which was so, so disappointing on uh, across so many axes, um, going, okay, this is the plan B of the plan B. Um, I put together like a virtual painting party and the, the place that I had booked it through fell apart at the last minute. And so I had to go like find a place that could do asynchronous video training. And I shipped everybody like paint kits and stuff. And, um, it was a disaster in so many ways and i was so embarrassed of what a disaster this thing was and do you know what the effect on the team was hugely team building it yeah. was like we went through this disaster together it was great nothing nobody got hurt this was a team activity it was supposed to be for fun in the first place and it didn't go the way we planned and that's great um it, you know as a as a person who plans something you want it to go off perfectly and it was the imperfections there's probably no greater lesson in this, so I won't dig for one. But it was the imperfections that made it feel human to people and caused the connections to happen.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting practices that our team has adopted um, is uh, this idea of the daily sync instead of a daily stand-up. It's an idea that we got from Ben Darfler at Honeycomb. And the premise is that instead of doing a daily stand-up, you have a one-hour daily standing meeting on the calendar. Um, which is counter to what almost everyone thinks that you ought to do when you're leading an engineering team. Um, But the theory behind it is that it defrags your calendar. So all these little one-off meetings that end up springing up in in your calendar in in, in an average week to discuss little one-off things all get consolidated into this session. And that part's been true. The calendar defrag effect has been real. But the other thing that... That, that Ben proposes will happen in this meeting is that you'll spend more time just shooting the breeze. Like the first 10 minutes of the meeting is explicitly for that, just to talk and to catch up and to see how everybody's doing. And I, I expected it to be good because I, I've always been inclined to leave a little bit of messiness in remote meetings anyway to give folks a chance just to kind of do some of that water cooler stuff that you don't get in most remote teams. But what I didn't expect is the amount of culture that has emerged in that meeting. Just by spending time together on a daily basis, the number of in-jokes that have come up, the number of like repetitive cultural themes that have emerged just because we spend that hour together every day. And I don't think I could take it away from the team at this point if I wanted to. I don't think I could take that time back because it's so foundational to the way that we work. And it's, if anything made us significantly more productive as a team, even though we're losing that hour of work every day.
0: Is there any structure to that meeting, or is it pretty free-flowing?
2: It's very free-flowing. We keep an agenda, and anybody can add to the agenda, and, and the agenda pretty much runs the meeting. Um, there is one person, this is literally from the blog post, there's one person that, that has the role of party pooper, and that rotates on a weekly basis. And it's that person's job. The only thing that person has to do you step in when we've had about 10 minutes of fun and there's kind of a lull in the conversation to steer the group towards the agenda but that that's that that role rotates around and that's really the only structure to it so i guess in, in the wake of talking about that one hour team sync i'm curious are there other practices that y'all have found helpful besides like figuring out how to do remote on sites learning more about the folks that you manage so that you can reward them and recognize them in meaningful ways what other tricks and hacks have emerged in your management style?
0: It's more of the things that I wish I would have done even before the pandemic over communication through multiple channels in zoom through email on various Slack channels. Um, I think people just have more distractions than usual. So, uh, meeting them where they are has been helpful. Um, also being more vulnerable and, Admitting my mistakes, admitting when I'm distracted in a meeting, asking people to repeat things. I was always afraid to ask people to repeat things. And now I think we're also used to it because someone might have a kid around, or you know, you maybe you just had a rough day and you got distracted or, or you just got, got distracted. And I've learned that being more vulnerable has also allowed people on my team to also be more vulnerable and also admit their mistakes and also just ask people to recap things. Um, I think those are the two things that came to mind for me.
2: Yeah, I hadn't thought about it until you just said that, but I've gotten way better at asking dumb questions, like make making sure that when one of those, when the team uses a term that I don't know, or talks about a part of our stack that I haven't learned about yet, not being, not being afraid to ask that question. not feeling like I have to be the manager with authority and have it all together. I hadn't thought about that at all, but that, that has definitely been a thing that I have grown in over the course of the pandemic.
3: Yeah, I mean, vulnerability begets more vulnerability. When I open up to you, Nick, that in- you as a human being are wired to open up to me, and vice versa. Um, and w- we all sort of had that vulnerability forced on us. Uh, some of us more so than others. Some of us less so than others. Like I think, Nick, you and I were really like fortunate to have had to have been in that place where like we were already sort of used to it. Um, My wife, like her world got turned upside down and I'm like, Oh yeah, I just have more people around. That's it. (laughs) Like I'm still working in the same place I've been working. Um, The, uh, but we sort of had that, that vulnerability by all of the things that were happening around us just sort of forced on us and the out, the outcome's still the same vulnerability gets gets more vulnerability so regardless of whether it's that personal interaction or just collectively hey this is kind of the world i inhabit now uh it opened up that pathway to where you could start to have those conversations where you could say hey i don't understand this hey uh, sorry i was <laughs> i i just saw a news alert that i needed to that like caught my attention or i just got a text from the school um could you repeat yourself like those types of things don't feel um I don't want to discount them. I don't want to say that they 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 feel safe now, but they don't feel as far out there as they did. It feels a little bit more acceptable to say, "Oh, sorry, I was reading a text from (laughs) my kid's principal."
0: The other thing I've had to tweak are interview processes, and you know, eight interviews is not acceptable anymore, and it shouldn't have been before, but it's really forced me to to look at the interview experience and ensure it moves quickly and ensure it goes smoothly and assessing the questions I'm asking, seeing if there's opportunities to combine interviews um, to still allow us to get the, the signal that we need and reduce you know the process maybe by one more interview. I don't know if it's helping yet, but... Uh, as someone who recently went through interviews, I think it's it's really hard to do them and and be a parent and work full time. So the shorter, the better, for sure.
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I think they're, more broadly speaking, too, so many of our processes. But I think interviews is a great one to hone in on because um, I think some of this might have been driven by the, just the more competitive environment for talent. But also, you you cannot in this environment get away with what we used to get away with, which is saying, jump through our 30 hoops for this company, and then not take into account that they're jumping through 30 hoops for another company and 30 hoops for another company. And uh, you people just don't have the bandwidth for that. And so I have noticed, I hadn't put any thought into that until you just said that, that Oh my gosh, this has tightened way up so much about many, many processes, but interview processes in particular have tightened, tightened up uh, because the people, the bandwidth is so limited for, for interviewees and interviewers. Like we just don't have the, as much to give. So how do we preserve the value of the signal, but be way less sloppy in the way that we acquire it and Um, I've put more effort into tightening up interview processes in the last two years than at any point previously in my career.
2: And it's not just less sloppy in how we acquire the signal, it's also more deliberate in the signal that we give as interviewers. Um, Because in, in a talent market that's this tight, and with engineers who are so much more attuned with what work-life integration actually looks like for them and what they need to to, to thrive in, in a work environment, being able to give those signals, being able to give them opportunities to get the information that they need to sort of opt into working at your company versus just deciding if they're qualified to work at your company is a really important part of the interview process. And I think companies that have figured that out are having a lot more luck hiring in in this really tight market.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had that experience that um I've always tried to have the goal of this being a two-way connection that we're making and a two-way evaluation, but at, it has never been clearer than it is right now that I am trying to help you select yourself into this position I'm not trying to sell you anything I'm gonna tell you I'm I'm brutally honest about the the challenges they're likely to experience because, Those challenges are going to be really attractive for the exact right kind of candidate, because I want somebody who's like comes in excited about the things that are actually shortcomings that they're going to have an opportunity to come in and help fix. Um, That making that two way connection with somebody, making sure that like that you're clear on what it is that they want is as important as being clear on what the role expects. And historically, that's been way more of a one way like hey jump over this wall and see if you can meet our expectations and then you're in um and then hopefully this is what you wanted too and that that just does not work anymore cuz to to work is just not the you know achieving a positive result in a, in a job interview is not the result like the end all be all of things anymore cuz they're looking for that integration in their lives they're looking for their job to feed into a a positive feedback loop in their life.
0: Yeah. And it has the added benefit too of freeing up your interview panelists um, by reducing the number of interviews I've been able to free up people for other interviews.
1: Yeah. It, it frees them up for that. It frees them up to, it also gives them more clarity so that they're not like, conf- like go into an interview confused about what it is that they're trying to do. Um, they go in and it's re- like, if you're combining two interviews, I bet you have to have real high signal questions that you're going for. Like no, no, um, like meandering around. It's like, look, here's, here's the signals that we're looking for in their gen. And it's actually like, I think Nick, you mentioned this too. The idea that you get really clear about what you're looking for. Like, Hey, here are the cultural values that we actually aspire to their kindness, their curiosity. Um, the, the the things you're looking for, and you have to actually get pretty specific about rubrics as well. I didn't write rubrics for my interviews before this. I sure do now. I'm a much more disciplined interviewer than I was two years ago.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to make sure my panelists can go into an interview and know exactly what they need to do and what they need to analyze and and how to fill out the or how to fill out the scorecard it's, it's improved that experience for them and for the interviewer.
3: Yeah. There's nothing worse than getting done with an interview as somebody doing the interview and be like, uh, I mean, yeah, that that was okay. And not having that, that, that system to lean on to say, okay, no, but this is what that okay means and and how that fits into what we're actually looking for. Um, I mean, one of the things we've kind of talked around here, uh, is, is one of the things Going back to our episode a few years ago about being remote, um, and one of the challenges being you have to be so much more intentional about it, and I feel this, everyone being remote all of the time, whether they want to or not, um, everyone in all parts of uh, the organization have had to get much more intentional about how they approach their jobs and i think you take that and you tighten the labor market the way it has and it's like oh we have to be so much more intentional about how we approach interviewing because you had a great call out brandon it's it's not a matter of um them the the person being interviewed selling themselves to the company more often than not by the time they've got to the the place that you're actually hopping on a call with them it's you selling the company to them. And how do you do that while still being able to find that, that, that percentage of people who get into the process that you need to weed out because, oh, this just isn't the right role for you, that you're not the right fit for this particular team. Um, It's not a, oh, you're not qualified. It's just a like, oh no, we need a left-handed person instead of a right-handed person, kind of a, a, a situation.
1: Yeah. I've gotten much more disciplined in my manager screens about putting a rubric around that and being like, I am not going to burn my team's time on a maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get my manager screen so good that I know when I send somebody through, there is a relatively high likelihood. And unfortunately that takes practice. And I really hate having to practice on human beings, but that is the nature of the game of interviewing. And, but I have over the course of Uh, the the process of interviews and sending too many candidates through my filter as a default to yes, because I don't like false Mm. negatives, uh, sent a lot of potential false positives through to my team and had the team go, why are you sending these people through? like, well, help me understand what I should be looking for in my screen. And that's gone really well. And so by the time somebody makes it through the manager screen, I have a pretty high confidence that the team is going to at least seriously respect the reasons that I put that person through.
0: Yeah. Another interesting thing too is, is identifying people that might not be right for your team, but might be work better on someone else's team.
1: Yeah. That's the, honestly, probably the 50th percentile of interviews and manager screens I go through. is like, man, I see why you put this person into my interview loop. They're not, they're not going to be right for my team, but we should definitely not let this person go. I don't know how that I'll let you know how that goes later, but it seems to be, I think I've seen one or two hires come through that way for other teams. Yeah, it's weird how disciplined the last two years have made me on certain fronts because we talk, We just talked about how some things are undisciplined. It's super important to create space for an undisciplined use of time, but you have to exercise the discipline to create that. It's really weird. There's a little bit of a paradox there.
2: Yeah, you got to turn off that drive for efficiency in some cases, and it's really hard to do sometimes.
3: I mean, it, there, there's a yin and a yang to it for sure.
1: Yeah, what about unstructured time? Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because you have, it sounds like, Nick, you may have built this in with the hour a day. Does that ma- mostly cover the unstructured water cooler time for your team?
2: Yeah, it it does, um, because that's really the only meeting that we're in in a day. We don't have other meetings on the calendar, so there's not like a lot of other other time for us to be unstructured. I mean, I've got my one-on-one with everybody, and those are those are delightfully unstructured, because that's the only way I know to do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is we're trying to roll it out with our executive team now and to build more unstructured time in our executive team meetings as well. And I'm curious to see how that, that experiment goes. It's, it's interesting so far.
3: That's a, that's a fascinating one to think about.
1: Yeah. That's something I feel like has been lost actually, that I haven't figured out how to regain. And, you know, we've talked about the, um, from the five dysfunctions of a team book, that concept of first team, your first team are your peers across the organization. That hey, we're here to collectively help the organization achieve its goals. My 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 responsibility is to the team that I manage, but my but what we are doing is actually my first team. Uh, of of made up of my peers. And that's really difficult to hold together, because I, I, it's much, it's much easier as the manager of a group of people to hold that group together and be like, hey, let's have some unstructured time. We're going to do this. We're going to, you know, bond. We're going to do these things. And then you look to your left and right, but there is no left and right. It's so easy to find yourself isolated as a, as like a line manager of a group of people, uh, and not feel connected to uh, a broader network of peers. That takes extra, extra work. I've noticed. I was hoping one of y'all had figured that out. You could teach me.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, it. It it's easy to hope that that sort of thing will just happen. And I think we we fall into that trap a lot where we wish we had a better peer group or we wish we had a more functional group of executives to lead with. And and at some point, you sort of have to to, to tip over to the realization that if you want that to happen... There's nobody better to create it than you. Now, is it reciprocated? Can you get the group of peers to band together? Can you get them to make that time in their calendars? That's sort of out of your control. But it's easy to fall into the trap of sitting there and wishing that it was a thing that you had and and just letting it stop there and not ever doing anything beyond wishing it was a thing you had.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's an area where a, a lot of of people in leadership forget that they have the ability to flex that leadership in directions other than down and you forget like, Oh no, the, the rest of the team may come along, and maybe you'll meet resistance. Um, maybe it's not going to be smooth sailing all the way across. Um, but you definitely, um, are, uh, more and more responsible for your own fate, uh, the further and further up the organization you go.
1: Yeah. I've been, Doing the job of managing engineers for a while, everybody on this call has, and not to you know th- throw anybody under the bus on the fact that time passes, but we've we've all been doing this for a minute, <laughs> and uh, even then, even sometimes being on the very high end of experience in a given group, um, when I set up one on ones with people, I learn something every single time. Um, And that cross peer relationship mentorship deal is really neat. If you're in a, in a position and I realize like if you're leading in a startup, you may literally have to reach outside your company for this. Um, May I recommend starting a podcast? Uh, (laughs) It's a real solid maneuver. Um, But I'm really grateful to, to be in a place at the moment where I have like great cross team peers that I can at least on a one-on-one basis reach out to. And I think, um, periodically, uh, I do see people try to pull that group together and, and do a little bit of cross, you know, cross team it, it, minimum collaboration, if not like m- mentorship.
3: Yeah. I mean, if we think about a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, um, whether it's setting up unstructured time or trying to understand something more about an individual and the place they live and the things they like to do and places they like to frequent. Um, a lot of that is trying to build in replacements or stand-ins for community. It's that community piece that we would be building if we were in the same, same space and going out to lunch together. Um, if we were stuck at the water cooler, refilling our water bottles at the same time, um, we would have these conversations and we would start to build that piece of community. Um, and I mean, To your point, Brandon, you build the community in the place that you're around. And if you're in a larger organization, you may be able to build that within the organization. If you're in a smaller organization, you still need the community. You still need that peer support group. So you're like, you're just going to have to expand, make a bigger pool. Um, And it's not going to be the people that have an email address that's the same as yours. going out and finding those people in, in the various communities that you participate in and trying to build that, that, uh, community of practice of people that are doing the same thing and have that shared common goal. And it's something, especially in a larger organization, especially in a larger organization where you're all co-located can kind of just happen because like, Oh, well we all manage this type of person. So we all end up at the same lunch table. Um, the smaller the organization gets, the more distributed the organization gets, the more you have to figure out where you're going to find that. And the more intentional you have to be about that. Um, and without that, I I can't imagine trying to weather the last few years if you don't have some sort of support mechanism like that. Hopefully it's not just listening to podcasts like this. Although keep listening. But- yeah,
0: what you... What you describe aligns exactly with my own experience at a larger organization. I feel like there's so many different intersections that you can connect with someone on, whether it's like where you're from originally, mm-hmm. or where you started your career. Um, maybe you cross paths, or you happen to work at the same company at different times, or you know, being an underrepresented person in your industry and disconnecting on experiences. Um, but that has been I think one of the benefits of being at a, a slightly bigger company is being able to explore those different intersections and connecting with people at different levels.
2: I feel like this conversation we have to reference Laura Hogan's manager of Ultron concept because that's that's exactly what she's talking about there is it's building that group of support. If you're in a big organization, maybe it's all people inside your organization. Probably not. There's probably still some piece of mentorship that you're not going to find in your peer group, even in the largest organization. But just making sure that you have those trusted voices in your career that you can go to and ask about challenges that you're facing that they've faced before, get advice on situations, um, give you perspective that, that you can't get because you're just too close to situations sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mentioned that to somebody yesterday and they laughed when they heard it uh, and I had to share the blog post, but you know, it's it's nice actually having a few different Voltrons too, <laughs> yeah. like your different crews of Voltrons. So going back to Zoom fatigue, I think where I struggle with that is not necessarily me. I'm fine with Zoom and, you know, online meetings, but I struggle with it with my team and, you know, it's like setting up social time always feels awkward if anyone shows up sometimes it's just me um, or one other person, which feels a little more awkward <laughs> than just me. <laughs> and it, it's really hard to get a read on that. Do people want that? Do people not want it? And then I, I kind of take that as Zoom fatigue, that people aren't showing up because they just don't want to be on another call. Um, and doing my best to minimize the number of, of calls people have a day um, which I think is always a good thing, but I struggle with measuring measuring that.
2: Yeah, I think it's hard, right? Because as managers, we carry a much heavier meeting load than any of the people we're asking to show up to meetings, and so you know, it's like we spend all day on the bench pumping the Zoom muscle. We got these big old <laughs> Zoom biceps. And all of our team is like maybe struggling to curl a five-pound Zoom dumbbell, and and you ask them to do it three or four meetings a day. That's that's way more than they're comfortable with being on camera, being on meetings, um, because it is harder. I mean, the research is pretty clear that remote meetings are more fatiguing than in-person meetings. Um, we, we spend way more time in our lives practicing in-person social interactions, reading in-person body language. Um, so it is hard, unless you're as practiced as we are. So calibrating that calibrating how much empathy to have for that is something that I've particularly struggled with.
3: You know, that is a great call out. Like in, in a, it, what feels like a lifetime ago, even in a, a pre pre pandemic era. Um, I, I organized possibly more local tech meetups than I should have, um, then was reasonably healthy. Um, but when you're used to spending at least one night a week, Up on a stage, introducing people, emceeing things, uh, or giving talks yourself—like you build that that performative muscle that Zoom is. It's you you don't you're not sitting around a desk. You're you've got a camera in front of you. There is a performance aspect to it. Like I'm, uh, I'm looking. Brandon and I both have like backdrops in the way that our offices are set up. Um, Brandon's is newer than mine. Um, but like, I, I know that your office was set up so that you have those pictures hanging the way that you do and the lighting in your room, the way that you do so that you have a backdrop. Um, you're just used to that, that type of world and you're much more comfortable in it, even going into this. And then the fact that we get to do this, um, and I did say we get to, not, we have to, uh, we get to do this four, five, six five, six plus hours a day where we're constantly going through this process, it's just like, oh yeah, no, just another Zoom meeting. It's you, you don't even think about it because it's just something, it's it's the water that we swim in and you forget that everybody else is like, wait a minute, I need to get some oxygen here.
2: And and it, I think it's also worth pointing out that the three of us, um, Estella, not, not as frequently, but the three of us also have very nice studio broadcast microphones sitting on our desk that we use to conduct meetings. And so... You know, that just ups the performative nature of it even more because there's a microphone in my face all day long, and it's a thing that just exists in my life, and I'm fine with it.
3: And two of us literally have studio lighting in our offices, so. We're basically, yeah, we're basically (laughs) Twitch streaming office work.
1: (laughs) Where's my ad revenue? I want my ad share. Honestly, I promise you your life is easier than those people.
2: Yes. So here's here's what I'll say that's interesting about this. In 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 the team that I'm lucky enough to lead right now, in the past I've been pretty militant for lack of a better word about cameras on all the time. Cameras on always. Uh cameras off is not an option if you're in a meeting. I've not said a darn thing to my current team. Um and it's interesting to me that as a manager, that is a tool that I can use to read the energy and the engagement of the room, not, not on a small, not on a small sample size. Like if you try to take meaning from this in a single meeting, it's not going to work. But like over time, if somebody has their camera off more, more often than not over the course of a week, that's a pretty good sign that I need to do a check-in with that person. And it makes up for a little bit of the body language that you lose by not managing somebody in person. Cause you can tell when somebody's shoulders are slumping in an office you can't tell it when they're working remotely, but you can tell if their camera's off in most meetings.
3: Now you just lost that lever with your team if they happen to listen to this. <laughs> what are they gonna do? Turn their cameras
0: on and just be sad.
2: <laughs> yeah. Hopefully they'll they'll know that I'm paying attention to it and they they'll use it as a way to give me a signal. It'll be their I'm unhappy warrant canary.
0: <laughs> I think so. I think that with the daily going back to the daily sync, like that's what I find attractive about that is it's it's like a stand-up and you've got an agenda but it can more naturally move into social time without forcing it
2: yeah I mean that's what's interesting is like it's we have an agenda but we sort of meander in and out of being focused and being distracted and being focused and being distracted so it's not even like once we shift into business mode it's not straight business it's like There's still a rhythm to it, and it's a rhythm that took a while for us to dial in. We were terrible at it for about six weeks. Um, It took us a while to get to the point that we realized that not everybody had to have an opinion about everything, and we could have productive conversations about things, and it was okay to meander in and out of work.
3: How much of the the official... You said it was agenda-driven. How much of the official agenda is non-work-related things? Hey, I just want to talk about this podcast episode that I was... I'm projecting here that people would want to do that, but... (laughs)
2: We actually, so the agenda is, is essentially just work related, but if I look at the average meeting, we're probably on task 50 to 60% of the time.
3: Okay. So to say it's agenda driven is, is it's loosely agenda driven.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, there is, there is definitely nobody keeping discipline to the agenda once we get into that phase of the meeting. Um, it just sort of me and occasionally the party pooper has to step in later in the meeting and go hey we've been off topic for a while what's the next thing on the agenda yeah. but again it's you know it's like it's like everything else you do with the team everything you do with the team is a muscle that you build and you just have to pick which ones you invest in and for us this sort of free flowing conversation that allows us to conduct work in a more social manner than 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 i think most teams are used to has been a pretty incredible thing to see a team build and something I've, I've never seen before
0: I've tried tactics like use like playing music at the beginning of a meeting to to get uh people's energy up it hasn't quite worked out for oh me. man
3: do y'all remember uh, and i'm I'm dating myself here but I I, I, I at least hope all of y'all remember this moment in internet history where uh, turntable FM came out Oh, sure. and you could have the yeah. shared DJing system. Could you imagine if that would have come out during the pandemic? Like it, it, it possibly would have broken the internet. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, they mistimed that. It's back. Is it? Yeah.
3: But well, you sound, you sound disappointed.
2: No, it's great. I, we did it the other day. It's a lot of fun. Okay.
1: Uh, on my current team, it would just be all uh, Taylor's version of of Taylor Swift songs so I'm and I have no problem with this So I realize this is sort of intensely personal but the thrust of the last couple of years has been how work is itself somewhat intensely personal and I will say the thing that has changed for me to the greatest degree that has changed me as a human being more than anything else over the course of the last couple of years has been the shift from needing to be the person who has everything figured out. Hey, I'm the manager. I'm supposed to have the answers. I'm the manager. I'm supposed to solve the problem to y'all. I'm not sure about this. Y'all I'm, I'm actually not feeling very confident right now. Hey, here's a thing I am thinking about and I don't have the answer to the question, but I think this is the shape of the question I'm trying to answer. And inviting the team into the room to help me solve things. Essentially like hanging up the superhero cape and saying, Hey, my, my job as a manager is not to be your hero and not to solve your problems and not to protect you from the business. I'm a member of the team, just like, like everybody else. And I really need your help. And I was a little nervous to bring this up because just as I, as we record this, I don't usually talk about things until I've had, had time to sit on something for maybe a year. Uh, and it's just things that I went through this week with my team and they just floored me with their response to some needs that I had where I just was not super functional. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's if this is just me over the course of the last couple of years, or if this has been like a lesson that people will step up. Like, I think you mentioned earlier, people tend to step up to help one another. Like, Hey, I've needed help.
0: Yeah. I haven't actually told people I need help, but I have been dropping the ball and I have just been fortunate to have someone there to pick it up. And, and that's been so rewarding. And it hasn't always been the same person, which is even better And people stepping up and taking ownership. And ownership has been like a word I've actually used a lot recently. And it's been really wonderful. But seeing those people step up and taking ownership. um, And in some cases, sharing that ownership has been, for me, so, so rewarding as a manager. And that's, I think, that's one thing I've also struggled with is delegation. And that's been my... My indirect way of delegating It's like, oops, I dropped the ball, and then someone picks it up.
1: Well, it's kind of like you said, the exposing imperfections and being vulnerable is the thing that causes that team to say, oh, yeah, my manager's not perfect. They they don't handle everything, and that's what we're here to help with.
3: I, you know, listening to you, Brandon, I, I, I just made a connection that I hadn't made um, until just now. Um, but something I've caught myself doing, uh, is, uh, thinking aloud as I work through the, the, my take on a particular thing, whether it's a solution to a problem or, a, um, a direction and, and how I feel about it. Um, and there's a, a vulnerability, there's a, a, an invitation when I say, well, I like, this is the word that's coming to mind, but I don't, it doesn't quite fit. It feels to this, or it feels to that, but like, this is kind of where my head is. And it, it's opening up that conversation to say, Hey, I'm I like, I have, I have opinions here. I have things that I want to do. It, it's almost a softening of that, that the, the thing that I love that Nick hates, that is the, the strong opinions loosely held. It is that sort of like, Hey. It, it it's, it's a, like taking the strong out of it and saying, Hey, this is the direction I'm leaning, but I want to like invite you to a conversation to try to like work out what the right, the right path is here.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think so Estelle used, you, you used the phrase, you know, you've dropped a lot of balls and you've relied on the team to come and pick some of those things up. That's been true for me as well. Like I, I got into the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of the ways that I organize myself and get work done and make sure I don't drop balls just suddenly fell apart under the stress of the way that we were all operating all of a sudden. And I think the lesson I took away from that is that, I don't know, a good 50% of that crap just didn't matter. Like it, Nobody picked it up, <laughs> but I didn't need to do it either. And I think in in the wake of that, the the lesson I took away from it is my job as a manager is not necessarily to to do all of those things for the mm-hmm. team it's to help the team craft the environment that they need to get the work done and, and i think that's something that i probably would have told you two months two years ago that i believed but i don't think i knew it the way that i know it now i, I don't think that i knew it i don't think i knew how to, how to do it the way that i know how to do it now to really kind of get out of the way and quit worrying about all the little penny-ante tasks that we spend our time on as a manager, and focus on the big stuff of helping helping the team make sure they're hiring the right people, helping the team make sure they have the right processes in place that don't stifle their, their creativity, but also keep them organized and help them deliver work. Um, you know, All that stuff matters so much more than all of the little IC manager work that I'm just not detail-oriented enough to do most of the time, and certainly not in the middle of a global pandemic.
1: Yeah, something that's been hugely helpful for me in sifting this is to not do things and have the team come back and not either not care or be like, Brandon, we need you to do this thing. And I'm like, okay, I will do that. That is the thing that I will do. And I will literally not guarantee I will do anything else this week. And then one or two weeks later, I will get that thing done.
2: Yeah, you figure out really quick the things that the team actually cares about you doing because they don't want to do or that they, they do not they can't do.
1: Yeah, they recognize, oh, this is the this is like manager territory. And what's cool about that is you're teaching them what they need from a manager for that from then on as well. Like they will be better at being managed from then forward. So kind of to your point, Estelle, I think that idea of hey, I'm there are things that I'm just dropping and the team is picking it up. Um, this is what you're happy experiencing that I'm that I am as well is this two way education of oh, these people are teaching. Me, what they need from a manager, and teaching me what they can do for themselves without a manager, intervening mm-hmm. necessarily. I think that's very. Again, you could move this back in time more than two years ago, and I'd be a better, more effective manager. But it was only necessary in the last two years. Y'all, I think that's probably about where we should wrap things up. This has been a really great discussion, Estella. We're so glad you oh, you were nice. here to join us for this one. Yep.
0: Thank you so much.
1: It's been a joy. Uh, for everyone listening, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, we love your your topics and questions and suggestions. Please do continue sending those to us. You can get at us at Managing Up Show on Twitter. Uh, we're also on various social networks. Uh, I am at Ty Viking on Twitter.
2: I am in Means on Twitter. I am T
1: most everywhere.
0: I'm at Chicagoine.
1: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again next time. Thanks, y'all.